Good morning. How's everybody doing? We're good. We're good. It's good to be together today uh, here at Tyson's. And uh, shout out to those of you watching online and at our different locations around the D.C. metro area. Uh, we're going to be in Psalm 73. Uh, so if you got a Bible, go ahead and make your way to Psalm 73. If you don't have one here, wherever you are, we'll have the verses up on the screen. But we're in a series called A Psalm for Everything, which is a very creative title. Um, that was a joke. Uh, but it's one we came up with, and I was a part of this. And here's why. Because we wanted to emphasize over this summer just God's goodness in giving us a psalm literally for every season and situation of life. A psalm that addresses or expresses the emotion that we wrestle with in the midst of those uh, varying seasons and situations. God has literally given us a psalm for everything uh, to help us learn how to come to him wherever we are and whatever we're going through. And so we're in Psalm 73, has 28 verses. It's a long psalm, so we got to dive right in, all right? Before we do that, <clears throat> let me ask you a couple questions, because I want to get us all on the train as we go on this journey through Psalm 73. And I don't want you to just listen casually. I, I really want you to think about these questions in terms of how they resonate with your own personal life. Here's some questions for you. Have you ever felt like following Jesus was keeping you from something? Have you ever gone through a time where you doubted God's goodness? Have you ever found yourself discouraged as you compared your life to other people's lives? As you see suffering and injustice in the world, has it ever caused you to doubt whether God is good or whether God is even real? Have you ever been angry at God because you felt like your circumstances were unfair? Have you ever had theological questions that made it difficult for you to believe the Bible? Those are a bunch of different questions, but all of those questions come out of the core of what we're going to be talking about today, which Psalm 73 is about. And what we're going to be talking about today is doubt. What does it look like when you go through a season of doubt? So we're going to walk through this psalm pretty much line by line. And I want to pray for us just quickly before, before we dive in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And God, you know, as I've been, I want to pray now. I've been praying the same thing all week. Lord, I pray that you would do by your spirit what I cannot do through this sermon. I pray that you would revive us according to your word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let me give you a little bit of context so you understand Psalm 73, because we're going to walk through this whole thing together. This song, uh, first of all, the, the Psalms in general, they're, they're, they're song lyrics, they're poems that would be set to music for the children of Israel to use in their worship gatherings. And sometimes that was worship on the move, like in the Psalms of, of Ascent when they're journeying. Uh, to, to Jerusalem. Sometimes that would be in the tabernacle. But this particular song, um, Psalm 73, the songwriter is a man named Asaph. And we know from one of the Old Testament history books, 1 Chronicles chapter 16, that Asaph was one of the most prominent musicians and worship leaders in Israel. In fact, uh, 1 Corinthians 16.4 says Asaph was the chief Levite. He was the chief worship leader in the tabernacle. 
Now, he wrote this song out of his own personal experience so that God's people would have it for generations to come so they could be reminded of the goodness of God and and they could be encouraged in seasons of doubt. And verses 1 and 2 set the stage for the rest of the psalm. So let's start with verse 1. Asaph writes, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now pause there for a minute. That is a doctrinal statement. It's like the topic sentence of the psalm. It's it's a general principle. God is good and and particularly good. Those who who experience his goodness in, in the most profound and satisfying ways are those who are pure in heart, those who are faithful in covenant to God, those whose hearts are truly and genuinely and fully devoted to God. So that is the the kind of statement of faith at the top of Psalm 73. This is what Asaph would have grown up believing. This is what every Israelite would have uh, believed at this point. And what the rest of this psalm explores is what do you do when it seems like that isn't true? God is good. But what do you do when it seems like he's not? And that's what he means by verse 2. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. So let me help you understand this. In Hebrew literature, uh, a a relationship with God is often pictured. You read this through the Psalms. You read it especially in the Old Testament. A relationship with God is often pictured, life with God is pictured as walking up a mountain. And so when Asaph says he almost slipped, what he's saying is, I almost got to the point where I lost my faith, where I almost gave up on God and went my own way. Asaph is experiencing what I'll call a crisis of faith. And so we're all on the same page. Let me define that for you. A crisis of faith is when what you believe conflicts with what you experience. Or to put it another way, especially for emerging generations in the church, a crisis of faith is when what what the the belief that you've inherited, like what your parents believed or what you've always been told was true, it conflicts with what you actually experience in real life. That's a crisis of faith. Tim Keller calls it spiritual vertigo. You know, vertigo is like when it, when it seems like everything is spinning or, or everything around you is moving. And what happens is, especially in inner ear disorders, what happens is the brain is receiving signals that aren't consistent with what the eye is seeing. There's a breakdown between what the brain is receiving and what the eye is actually seeing and experiencing. And vertigo is what results as your brain works to sort out the confusion. Vertigo vertigo is very disorienting. Dizziness is what you begin to experience. And and, and Tim Keller says, well, that's physical vertigo, but there's a spiritual vertigo, This, this season of disorientation and doubt, where everything that you thought was stable now is questionable. Everything that you thought was firm now feels very shaky underneath your feet. And that's what happens to Asaph. And for him, his crisis of faith began with envy and suffering. You see that 
in, in verse 3. He says, let me explain precisely what I mean about this crisis of faith. He says, verse 3, he says, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, who is Asaph talking about? We, we don't know for sure. He doesn't tell us specifically, but he calls them wicked. So we know that they live profane lives. They don't love God. They don't love their neighbor. And so some scholars say Asaph is talking about kind of people from the surrounding pagan nations. And that's possible. We don't know for sure. But I personally think Asaph is talking about other ungodly Israelites. And the reason I think that is because down in verse 27, he refers to them as unfaithful, which is covenant language. So I think these are people who grew up religious but abandoned their faith in order to pursue what this world has to offer. And it seems to have worked out for them. Asaph is looking around at people he grew up with in the Israelite community. They've walked away from God, and it seems like they're living their best life. Look at how they're described. We won't go through all these verses, but let me just scan these verses for you. They're prosperous in verses 4 and 5. In fact, they're so prosperous that it looks like they don't even have any problems. They're prideful in verses 6 through 9. And they're increasingly popular in verses 10 and 11. And then in verse 12, Asaph finishes up his assessment with this. Listen to what he says. He says, behold, these are the wicked. And look at how he describes them. Always at ease. They increase in riches. You see what he's saying here? He's saying that, look at how these people live. He's saying they're not even good people, but they're living the good life. They're healthy. They're wealthy. They're living the good life, they don't seem to have any problems. He's comparing his life with other people's lives. And what he's experiencing is he's like, God, I'm walking in faithfulness to you, and I'm suffering, and they've abandoned faithfulness to you, and it looks like they're flourishing. And so he's comparing his life to their life, and envy begins to distort his perspective. Now, pause there for a minute. This is a quick sidebar. This is what envy does. Envy always distorts our perspective because envy is always spiritual warfare. Envy always distorts our perspective. Listen, it always causes us to over-exaggerate the good in other people's lives. And you see that language in, in, in this psalm, just so we understand what, what Asaph is doing real quick, fellas, if your girl has ever said to you, you never take me out, how do you respond? You're like, we just went to Chick-fil-A last week, which is a poor response. Unless you are in ninth grade. But we did the same thing when we were growing up as kids. We would tell our parents, you never let me have fun. Really? I've never let you have fun before. That's extreme language to articulate deeply painful emotion. So look at what happens. Look down at verse 4 if you got your Bible. There it says, when, 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 when Asaph looks at the ungodly, listen to what he says. He says, they have no pains until death. In verse 12, he says, they are 
always at ease. Now, we know that's not true, right? And I think he knows that's not true. When he looks at people who are prospering, he doesn't literally think like they don't have any problems, right? More money, more problems. Rich people got rich people problems. Like he realizes that, but he's looking at their life and what envy is doing is it's causing him to over-exaggerate the goodness in their life and it's causing him to underappreciate God's goodness in his own life. So you see verse 14, when he looks at his own life, he feels like he's suffering all day long with new suffering coming his way every morning. That's it. In other words, it feels like these people don't have any problems and I only have problems. And here's the thing, it's because envy is a microscopic lens. Envy causes you to zoom in on another person's life and just focus on that good thing that you want out of their life. And you focus in on that thing so much that it takes God's goodness out of you. You don't sense the goodness of God anymore because you're just focused on what they have that you don't. That's what's happening to Asaph. But that's not the most painful part. Here's the most painful part. Notice the words he uses in verse 14. He says, for all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. You see, it's not just the success success of the wicked. It's that it's his own suffering that's causing him to experience this. And listen to the language, stricken and rebuked. By who? He feels stricken and rebuked by God. God, you're the one who's allowing this to happen. And this is a theological challenge for Asaph. It's messing up his, his theology. God is good, particularly to those who are pure in heart. But I'm suffering, and they're the ones experiencing your goodness, and they're not even faithful. And it's messing up his theological framework. Bob Deffenbaugh says, from Asaph's perspective, sinners were being blessed and saints cursed. It was as though God had turned his covenant upside down. It's a theological challenge, but it was also deeply personal for him. He's saying, God, I've done all of this for you, and what are you doing for me? And that's why he says what he says in verse 13. Look at the conclusion he draws from his crisis of faith. Verse 13, he says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. He says this has all been in vain. What was the point of all those years of faithfulness? You see, this is what can begin to happen when our theology makes God a means to an end. Because then when you don't get that end, now you begin to question who God is. Now you begin to judge God's character based on your circumstances. And so if your idea of God's goodness is based on you getting what you want, then when you don't get what you want, now God's goodness is in question. And if God's wisdom is based on you being able to understand everything, then when you can't understand everything, now God's wisdom is called into question. He says, what was the point? And I think there's a question he's wrestling with underneath that statement in verse 13. 
And I can't think of a scarier question than this question. In fact, this question is literally the biggest fear of my life. Now, I have a lot of biggest fears. I don't know why, but I'm afraid of being stranded out in the middle of the ocean. I don't know why. I didn't go through nothing traumatic in my childhood or nothing like that. Maybe because I watched that Tom Hanks movie. I don't know. But I'm terrified of being stranded out in the ocean. I'm terrified of going to prison for a lot of reasons, right? But listen, this question that I think is underneath verse 13 is literally the biggest fear I have in my life. Here's the question. What if I've been wrong about this the whole time? Literally the biggest fear in my life. What if all the ways that I was raised in a Christian tradition, what if those things are not true? What if after making a decision to follow Jesus and to deny the urges of my flesh and the desires of my heart to live like everybody else, what if after all of that I've been wrong about this Christian thing the entire time? Can I just get super practical for a second? I'm just going to be real honest. Can I get, be real honest? Can you just say yes? All right, cool. All right. So, like, let's just be real practical. Let's think about biblical giving. Like, for me, if, if I, and I have, I shouldn't, but I've calculated how much money I give to the church on an annual basis. I've been at McLean Bible Church for 15 years. When I calculate how much money I've given to the church, and then I compare that to where that money could have gone. I know you laughing because we all feel it. Me and Elon could have been boys, right? And we wouldn't. We would still would not be anywhere in the same stratosphere. Uh, um, but think about it. If you're a faithful follower of Jesus and you give faithfully to kingdom causes and you give to this local church if you're part of this church or wherever church you're part of, all the money you've given, do you know how foolish you look if none of this is true? If Christianity isn't true and you've spent all of this time saying no to some of the stuff that you want in your life, the stuff you want to do with your life, do you know how foolish that looks? And let me say, let me say this, if the way you're following Jesus doesn't make that question scary for you, then you're not really following Jesus. Because to follow Jesus is to lean completely on him and his will and his word so that if Christianity isn't true, your life looks completely foolish. If there's no risk, if, your, if Christianity isn't true and your life would look the exact same, then you're not really following Jesus. And I think that's the question that Asaph is wrestling with deep down. What if I've been wrong about this the whole time? What if all of this has been in vain? And for him, it started with envy and suffering. That's what brought Asaph to a crisis of faith. Let me ask you this, though. What was it for you? Like, what led you to a crisis of faith? What's driving that crisis of faith for you now? I was preparing and praying for this sermon, and just on a whim, Friday evening, I was like, you know what, let me get on Instagram. I just recorded a reel, 
And it was just a short video that just said, listen, I'm preparing this sermon. If you've gone through a crisis of faith before, you grew up Christian or you were a Christian and you went through a season where you felt like you were losing your faith or you lost your faith, but you made it to the other side with stronger faith. I said, I want you to DM me just one or two things that you would say were helpful for you in getting to the other side with stronger faith. 24 hours, like 70 responses. And one of the things I noticed in reading all these stories from people, some of whom are in our church, is that so many different things can lead us to a crisis of faith. Where what we believe conflicts with what we've experienced. So for you, it might be injustice. That's what Asaph is wrestling with. It's a sense of injustice. Like, I'm a good person and I'm experiencing this suffering. And how are these evil people, as you read through the psalm carefully, these evil people, hateful, violent people, how are they flourishing? This this sense of injustice. How can a good God allow this? Maybe it was the suffering or death of a loved one. Maybe you lost a child, a parent, a friend. I think about one of our pastors right now whose three-year-old daughter is battling leukemia. How does your faith survive watching a three-year-old go through chemo? Maybe, maybe it wasn't somebody else. Maybe it's your own suffering, physically or emotionally, your own suffering. You can't figure out why a good God will keep you in the midst of that suffering. Maybe it's intellectual doubt for you. It's questions that have gone unanswered, inconsistencies that just aren't resolved. You bring it up to other Christians and they just minimize it or they dismiss it. Or they just slap a cliche on it. Maybe it was unanswered prayer for you, prolonged unanswered prayer. You're not praying for something sinful. You're praying based on the promises of God in Scripture. You're taking him up on his word and you're asking him as his child for some specific things that would be good and healthy and helpful for you. And you don't understand why God is not answering that good God-honoring prayer. I don't know what it is for you. But here's what I do know. What I do know is that often we in churches, we haven't often done a very good job of preparing people, discipling people, and loving people through a crisis of faith, of helping people process their doubts. Because in more conservative Christian circles, we tend to just condemn doubt. And it's because we've set up this false dichotomy between doubt and faith. But doubt is not the same thing as unbelief. And so we just condemn doubt. But in more progressive Christian circles, they celebrate doubt. They just embrace doubt as as my truth. And so my doubts become more authoritative than God's revealed word. But the Bible doesn't do either of those things. Like in Scripture, and I wish I had another hour to show you this, all throughout Scripture, 
Because what you see is that God actually invites us to bring those doubts to him because doubt can actually be something that deepens our faith if we handle it appropriately. Deepens our faith because so often our faith is on this superficial, circumstantial foundation. And God will take us through what James talks about, the testing of your faith. That's a process of spiritual maturity and sanctification where God takes those roots deeper. You got to remember this guy, Asaph, is a prominent religious leader. And he is going through a crisis of faith. The one leading the worship is going through a crisis of faith. Why? Because doubt doesn't necessarily mean you don't believe. Doubt means you're struggling to believe. And one of the things I see is that when kids grow up in church, oftentimes we just give them these statements of faith. Or, or worse, we just give them these Christian cliches. And we don't do enough theological form. This is why, this is why student ministry can't just be entertainment. We, we don't do enough theological formation often in practical discipleship to prepare emerging generations for that season where what they believe or what they've been told is true conflicts with what they actually experience. We, we often haven't handed them a faith that can survive contact with doubt. And so what happens is, here's what happens. They graduate from high school. And the Christian circles they're in have have never really talked about how theology and science aren't mutually exclusive. We just shun it and just say, believe the Bible. But we don't prepare them to think. And so they show up in their first semester, they hear a professor say something that has already been addressed in 2,000 years of church history, but they've never even heard the question. And now that one thing causes their faith to crumble. Or they grow up hearing the way we talk about those groups of people. They grow up hearing that those people are just evil and just absolutely depraved and there's nothing good about those people. And then they go into the workforce and they realize these are some delightful people. These are some intelligent, kind, loving people. When I moved to this city, the people that y'all said were just depraved, they're the ones that invited me into their apartment. They're the ones that gave me community. They're the ones that met me where I was and sacrificed and gave in order to help bless me. And so they've been believing a caricature about people all this time. And then when they actually experience those people in real time, now their faith crumbles and they don't know what to believe. And this is partly why we can't settle for casual Christianity. Not just because it's unbiblical, but because it's untenable. Casual Christianity will not sustain you in a crisis of faith. So what do you do when you're experiencing a crisis of faith? 
What do you do? Before I give you these thoughts, let me just say this. I'm not up here to fix you. Like if you're in a crisis of faith or you're wrestling through doubts, as I was praying through this, I just was like, God, I can't fix people who are wrestling with this right now. I cannot make your doubts go away. I can't. But as I was praying, I just felt the Lord putting on my heart. You're not up there to fix them. You're up there to give them permission to be where they are. Listen to me. You can't stay there. You can't stay there. It's an untenable place. But I want you to hear not just from me, but from what we are seeing in Psalm 73, that you have permission from God to be where you are and not just be where you are, but be with God where you are. You don't have to abandon your faith because you are wrestling with doubts. And so listen, if you're taking notes, either for yourself or for somebody who's going through this, I just want to give you four things to do if you're going through a crisis of faith. And I just want to, I'm going to list these, I just want to give you a flyover because all I want to do really is just give you this framework to sit with and process between you and God or with somebody who's wrestling with this. And I'm going to give them to you up top, four things. Be honest. Be intentional, be careful, be encouraged. Be honest, be intentional, be careful, be encouraged. Let me explain these and then we'll wrap up. Number one, be honest. Be honest. Man, some of us are, we struggle to be honest with ourselves. To actually be honest with ourselves that we're in a season of doubt. We're terrified of just articulating to ourselves, I don't know if I believe this. Because we're afraid where that's going to lead us. And I get it. I understand. But we have to, to journey through to the other side, we have to be honest with ourselves. And then we have to be honest with God. That's what we see modeled in Psalm 73, that God is inviting those doubts. And it's not just in this psalm. It's all over the psalms. That doubt and faith are not mutually exclusive. In fact, bringing our doubts to God is in itself an act of faith that he is pleased with. So we got to be honest with God. But here's what I really want to highlight for us. We have to be honest with others in biblical community. I want you to notice what he says in verse 15. Listen to what Asaph says. He said, so he's been processing everything that he's experiencing, this crisis of faith. And he says, if I had said, I will speak thus, then I would have betrayed the generation of your children, God. You see what he's saying? He's saying, if I had been honest about the doubts that I was experiencing, that would have been betrayal to the spiritual community that I came up in. He's saying, God, I I couldn't be completely honest with what I was wrestling with because of how it might affect others or how others might perceive me. But you got to process this stuff in Christian community. Listen, when I sent out that video on Friday asking for people's feedbacks, like 70 responses, I read all of them, by far the number one most consistent theme for people who made it to the other side with stronger faith was Christian community. 
That's not a pastor saying you need community. These are people who went through doubts, abandoned their faith at some point in their life, or felt like they were losing their faith, but they made it through to the other side with stronger faith. They said, unprompted and disconnected from each other, Christian community. We got to be honest with some other people. Now, we can do that with a counselor. With a counselor that, that can really help us and is trained to help us process some of the deep doubt and grief and everything that we're wrestling with. But here's one of my concerns. Often in our kind of modern day church setting, we use counseling as a replacement for Christian community. So it's fine to get counseling so that that counseling can help give you clarity on how to be more vulnerable and articulate clearly what you're going through in Christian community. And not just any kind of Christian community. The consistent theme was patient, non-judgmental Christian community. One guy said this. He said, continuing to go to a church small group even when I was angry was helpful. He said, but it was very important that the group was not judgmental or just labeled it as apostasy. Because I was with a community who was not only unafraid of my questions, but encouraged me to ask them and walked beside me as I searched for answers. I always felt like other people were pressured me to figure out my faith more than God did. Looking back, he, talking about God, was patient and slow in helping me unlearn bad theology and learn to trust him. I think other, this is what he said. He said, I think other people get so anxious or uncomfortable that they want their crisis friends to figure it out ASAP when God has his own timeline for healing and everyone's timeline is going to be different. One person here at McLean Bible Church wrote me, she said, I'm a 51-year-old woman and I've been walking through a dark season of doubt, but I'm getting to the other side. She said, the church is so uncomfortable with dark places and doubt, but God is not. I sensed his permission to be raw and honest with him. And I'm so fortunate to have a husband and a few friends who have been, and she capitalized this, safe spaces for me to let it out and process through. And y'all, I was reading Jude this week, just in my own personal devotion and thinking about this topic. And I don't know why this Verse, it just almost brought me to tears. It's just, it was just so beautiful to me. Listen to how simple this verse is. Jude 22 says, be merciful to those who doubt. You know why I think that struck me? Because what hit me is like how kind God is. And when he was inspiring the scriptures and that he decided to put this verse in the Bible. Like if you're in a crisis of faith, you should feel so loved and pursued by God that God decided to put that verse in the Bible. He said, listen, all of y'all that are going to claim to be followers of me, all of y'all that believe the gospel, all of you Christians, I want you to be merciful to those who doubt. I'm praying that God would continue to grow us as a community of mercy, as a safe space for people who are in process and wrestling. We got to be honest about what we're walking through. Here's number two. We got to be intentional. Intentional. 
Here's what I mean. Look at verse 16 and 17. Asaph says, but when I thought how to understand this, he's trying to understand everything that he's wrestling with. He said, it seemed to me a wearisome task. In other words, he's saying doubt was wearing me out. In verse 17, he says, this is the turning point in the psalm. He says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned therein. Here's what I want you to see. Asaph, in the midst of a crisis of faith, listen, continues to participate in corporate worship. That's not just a plug for you to keep coming to church. It is low-key a plug for you to keep coming to church, but that's not it. Here's why I'm emphasizing that. Because I've walked through a lot, with a lot of people through a crisis of faith. My wife and I have been through our own, and I've, we've walked with per friends personally and pastorally. And one of the greatest temptations I see over and over again is the temptation when you're in a crisis of faith to begin to neglect the things that actually strengthen and build faith. It is so predictable, and it is precisely the wrong thing to do. And sometimes we do it because we feel like a fraud. We feel like, why should I continue coming to church when I'm not even sure I believe this right now? Why should I keep reading the Bible when I'm struggling to actually read the Bible or even want to read the Bible? I don't even, I don't even know if I believe it. And what we do is we begin to neglect and become passive when it comes to the things that God has designed to actually build faith. Listen, how many of y'all are runners here, wherever you're watching from? How many, hands up, how many of y'all are runners? All right, cool. I see some honest people, because I didn't ask, have you run before? I'm saying, are you a runner, okay? If you ask a runner, how did you begin to love running? Here's what they're not going to say. In my grad school program, I took a class on the, on the science and mechanics of running. No. You know what they're going to say? How did you start to love running? You know what they're going to say? I started running. It's this thing called run runner's high that I am wholly unfamiliar with. <laughs> Where you get used to those endorphins flowing. You get used to that feeling in your lungs. You get used to the rhythm, right, of your feet hitting the pavement. You get used to, to being more in shape. It becomes addictive. Here's why, here's why. Because our habits affect our hearts. James K.A. Smith talks about this, a theologian and sociologist. He writes about this in his writing about liturgy. And for him, what he's, when he talks about liturgy, he's just talking about habitual practices. That could be secular or religious. That we have in our culture, we have in our churches, just habitual practices. And those practices have an effect on our hearts. And that's why he says liturgies aim our love. And when it comes to Christianity and following Jesus, in the context of what we're talking about, listen to what he says. He says, worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts reforms our desires and rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something we do. It is where God does something to us. So listen, listen. I'm not just talking about worship in terms of singing some songs and lifting your hands. I'm talking about that too. But I'm talking about worship in a Romans 12, 1 and 2 kind of way that describes your life. Worship is a life of surrender to God. 
right? Of responding to who God is. And that kind of intimacy with God is going to look different in different seasons. And part of what you do to yourself is you judge yourself because it doesn't look the same in this season as it did in a season where your faith was strong. So you may not be able to stay up with the reading plan. You may just be able to get through one verse and to sit with that verse and to beg God to shine light to help you understand that one verse. You might not be able to pray all these eloquent prayers. It might just be prayers that we see in the Psalms, these bursts of emotion in the presence of God. But don't stop doing the things that God in his mercy has given you to actually build faith. You got to be intentional. One woman wrote me who was on staff at a church and went through significant spiritual and emotional abuse from the leadership. And she said this, she said, I left that church but went to another one. She said, it felt very clear to me that I didn't need to walk away from Jesus to find myself. I didn't need to walk away from the Bible to find myself, but I needed help to sort through what was Jesus and what wasn't. She said, it's been a journey for sure. I still haven't been able to officially join my new church as a member because it's still pretty traumatizing. I'm sorting through that while staying plugged in. She said, it felt so firm in my spirit to leave the abuse but not leave the church. When you're in a crisis of faith, don't become passive and disengaged. Continue to do the things that strengthen faith as an act of faith that in that process, in God's timing, God the Holy Spirit will do a a work in your heart. Here's the third thing. Be careful. This is a pastoral word to you. Be careful. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 18. He says, God, this is him. Kind of the vertigo is wearing off. He's seeing a little bit more clearly. He starts the song by saying he felt like he was slipping. Look at what he says in verse 18. He says, truly, God, you set them in slippery places. In other words, what he's saying here is, when I was in my crisis of faith, I felt like I was in a slippery place, that Christianity didn't make sense, that what I believed and what I was experiencing, I wasn't able to pull that together. I felt like I was in a slippery place. But now on the other side, seeing more clearly, God, now I realize it's those who walk away from you that are on a slippery place. You set them in slippery places, God. You make them fall to ruin. This is the judgment of God. He says how they are destroyed in a moment, swept utterly away by terrors. Verse 20 says, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them like phantoms. What Asaph is saying is that those people who walk away from God are living in illusion. They think that the best life is life apart from God, that the more intellectually satisfying life is the one where they abandon, quote unquote, primitive Christianity for these modern kind of revisions of stuff that Christianity has already weathered the storm against for 2,000 years. And Asaph realizes in that moment, no, God, no, that those are people who now are experiencing your passive judgment where you allow them to go their own way. And for a season, it seems like they're winning. But there is coming a day, Asaph realizes once again, where God, your active judgment will come and it will be real. And that day is inevitable and it will be irreversible. 
Because you and I, every single one of us, every single one of us has done everything we can to deserve the judgment of God. Because we cannot fulfill the standards of his law. We can't. We have violated his will. We have stiff-armed God. And we deserve his judgment. And God in his great love doesn't want us to experience that. And so he provided a way for us to escape that judgment. Not because we're good people or because we can earn our way out of that. Because we can't. But he sent his son Jesus to live the righteousness that we couldn't and to die the death that we deserve. Jesus took the judgment of God and absorbed the wrath of God so that we could put our trust in Jesus and we can escape that judgment. It's the best news in the world that God, who has no reason to save us, decided to do it simply because he is good and he's loving and he's merciful and he's gracious and he's provided a way. But listen, there is this delusion in our culture, and Asaph says it's like a dream. Where we think doesn't matter what you believe. And so there's this movement of deconstruction. And there's a healthy deconstruction where you separate what's cultural and unbiblical from what is actually biblical, but there's an unhealthy, deadly deconstruction where you just deconstruct actual biblical Christianity, and you just abandon your faith. And I want to say, be careful. Asaph realizes that path doesn't lead where you want it to go. That path actually leads to a less satisfying life, and it ultimately leads to the judgment of God. Y'all remember Miss Universe Pageant 2015? Steve Harvey was hosting. You remember this? Like the people laughing remember. Some of y'all don't remember. Let me just remind you real quickly. So what happened, Steve Harvey, there's two contestants left Miss Universe. Steve Harvey comes out with enthusiasm, y'all, and says, Miss Universe 2015 is Miss Columbia. Everybody's going crazy, clapping. Miss Columbia is crying tears of joy. She's getting ready to be crowned. And... That lasts for a moment, and then all of a sudden, something weird is going on. Steve Harvey comes back out. And there's no other way to do this. So he just dives right in. He says, I need to apologize. Miss Columbia is runner-up. He called the wrong person. He says, Miss Universe 2015 is actually Miss Philippines. And Miss Philippines is standing there, and you see her face changing. She's confused, surprised, doesn't know what's happening. There's a smile kind of starting to form. There's this reversal that happens. Listen. The judgment of God is going to be a great reversal. And I know it's hard to believe. This is one of those things where you just have to believe it on the strength of God's word because you're just not going to know whether or not it's true until you actually experience it face-to-face with God. So it does require faith, but so does abandoning God. And there is this day coming. Right now, the world declares who's winning. It's those who live their best life, who live their truth. If those who are not bound, right, by, by the principles and restrictive truths of Christianity, and they just do what they want to do. Those are the people who are winning. But there is a definitive day coming. There is a day coming 
where the first shall become last and the last shall be first. There is a day coming where those who refuse to believe the gospel that God has made clear for us in his word and attested to throughout generations of human history, there's a day coming where you will see that God was real and that what God said is true and that will lead to eternal regret. And there is a day coming for those who walked with Jesus faithfully, not perfectly, but faithfully and trusted in him and stumbled as they tried to hold on even to the thread of faith that they had left, where that day will lead to eternal joy because those who trust in the Lord will not be put to shame. And so that's why I say be careful because this life can be deceiving. And when the smoke clears, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Listen, on that day, both of those groups of people will agree. Nobody's going to disagree on that day. Everybody's going to agree that God was right and Jesus is who he said he was. Everybody's going to agree. And that agreement will lead to eternal regret for one group of people and eternal joy for another group of people. So be careful. It's not worth it to abandon your faith. Here's the last thing, be encouraged. I know that's like a hard left turn, be encouraged, but let me tell you what I mean. And We don't have time to savor these verses the way I would want to. But I just want to show you the truths from these verses to give you a framework for just, This is the part of the psalm that I think is, is my favorite part to meditate on. And I want to give it to you to sit with God personally. Because if you're in a crisis of faith, I want you to hold on to these truths that God is with you. He's with you. Verse 21, Asaph says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. He says, God, I was like a beast towards you in that season. Anybody ever felt like that? I had woman, one woman DM me. She said, I cursed God out more times than I want to admit. Look at verse 23. Asaph says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. Look at what he says. You hold my right hand. Look at the whole psalm, the bookends. In the beginning, he feels like he's the one who's stumbling and slipping. And he realizes on the other side, God, you've been holding on to me the whole time. You've been with me the whole time. Because he promised to never leave you or forsake you. Even when you've lost track of him, he hasn't lost track of you. It's an incredible picture of God's grace that he is with you. And he will guide you. You see that in verse 24. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. He's saying, God, you're going to guide me and you're going to get me to the end. God just needs mustard seed faith, y'all. Because it's not the strength of your faith. It's the strength of the one you put your faith in. And he has promised, Philippians 1, 6, that the work he began in you, he will bring it to completion if you hold on. Yes. He'll guide you and he will satisfy you. This is verse 25. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. This is his heart emerging from the pit. He's like, to whom else will I go? 
It's a leap of faith for me to go embrace this other worldview. But God, you've given me so much, so much firm ground to stand on. And it's not that nothing in this world is satisfying. It's that everything in this world that's satisfying points to the one who's the giver of every good and perfect gift. That's why C.S. Lewis writes, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. God will satisfy you. And God will strengthen you. I know your faith is weak right now. I know that your hands are like trembling because you're trying with all the little strength that you have to hold on to that one little thread of faith that you still have right now. But listen, verse 26, Asaph says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He'll strengthen you. And here's the last thing, and I know this will be hard for you to believe, but God will glorify himself through you. Look at verse 27. Asaph says, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I love the older translations that say, The nearness of God is my good. He says, I've made the Lord God my refuge. And look at the effect of that. He says, That I may tell of all your works. So I say, I think God's giving you permission to be where you are, but he doesn't want you to stay there. He wants to lead you to the other side with stronger faith. Why? Because there are some people that need to hear your story. Because what God is doing in a crisis of faith, if you are trusting in Jesus, is he is actually deepening your faith. He's burning off the superficialities where your faith is based on this inherited faith or based on good circumstances. And he's taking those roots down deep in a Psalm 1 kind of way, planted by streams of water. That's what he's doing. And if you can hang on and trust in him, there are some people who need to hear your story because they can't be helped by superficial Christianity. They can't be helped by cliches. They need to see some people that have actually been through the fire, who've gone through the doubts, who've looked at it in the face and didn't even know if they were going to make it to the other side. But now they can say, God was holding me the entire time, and he is good, and he is faithful, and he never stopped his work. And so maybe one takeaway for you is you need to tell some people your story. Do your kids know the doubts that you've wrestled with? Do they know know those seasons of life where your faith wasn't as strong as it looks right now? Because that's real Christianity. Don't set them up for fake Christianity. Let them see and understand. No, 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 no. Doubt is is a part of the process of deeper faith. And if you're in the midst of that crisis of faith, I just want to pray for you. I want to pray that God will revive you according to his word, that he would sustain you to the end. And I want to pray that he would continue to make us as a church family a place of mercy and help for those going through a season of a crisis of faith. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that you've promised to never leave us nor forsake us. 
That's not just a pep talk. That's not this kind of light, easy believism. No, Lord, judgment is real. And we can't shipwreck our faith. But God, you faithfully pursue us. As long as there's breath in our lungs, you pursue us. I want to pray now as I've been praying all week. I pray for people in a crisis of faith, Lord, by your spirit that they would feel loved and pursued and seen by you. That today may not be the moment where they get to the other side, but Lord, would today be the moment that a confidence begins to rise that you will get them through to the other side. Pray you pour out your mercy, pour out your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.